Well, uh, friends, my name's Brad. I'm part of the teaching leadership team here at Jericho. And uh, just as we start into a new series today, um, I thought about how often do you hear the word or the phrase life changing? You know, you're watching a commercial and someone will say, this invention will change your life. It'll save you time, it'll save you money, et cetera, et cetera. And you see ads all the time where this phrase gets tossed around. It's life-changing. And several years ago, scientists in the UK were asked to put together a list of what would be the top 10 things that have been actually life-changing, like change the course of human history. So take a guess. What do you think would be on the list? Shout something out. The printing press, that makes it up there. What else? There's a big hint in the picture. The wheel, there you go. What else? No, donuts are not on the list. Microwaves don't make the list. What else? Telephones, that makes the list. Oh, a microscope. Oh, that didn't make the list, but it's a good candidate. What else? Penicillin, that should have made the list too. What else? The, the loom. Wow. <laughs> okay. Well, let me put up the 10 that the uh, scientists in the UK came up with. We got wheel, printing press, telephone is one, communication, right? Uh, the steam engine made everyone's list uh, because of the, in the great leap forward that that was in transportation. Uh, the light bulb made the list in terms of extending the ability of uh, individuals to be able to sort of control daylight, the personal computer, the airplane, uh, paper also, a big winner in that category, and the camera to be able to record things, and the automobile. So you may have a different list. I think some of those things you shouted out were pretty good candidates. Uh, maybe we could argue for more medical devices or food cultivation or other military inventions. Uh, but many inventions actually do, many things do really change our lives. And our topic today as we look into the book of Colossians is going to try and we're going to try and probe into this notion of life change. How does it happen? Why does it happen? Uh, we're starting a teaching series in the book of Colossians, and the title for this series is Greater Than. And this comes from the phrase that uh, the Apostle Paul, who writes the book of Colossians, keeps using over and over and over again. He returns to this theme in his letter and says that you know, Christ and the influence that Jesus has had not only on the lives of the Colossians and the individuals he's writing to, but on human history, has had the greatest impact than anyone or anything else. Greater than, we'll talk about next week, than uh, Christ's influence is greater than the created universe, greater than the wisdom of the world, greater than social structures, greater than hierarchies, greater than religious systems. And so we're going to dive in this, uh, this afternoon in chapter 1. And so if you have your Bibles or devices with me, you can open up or turn uh, to Colossians chapter 1, and most of the verses are going to come up on the screen, and you can follow along uh, with me. I'll start reading in verse 1 of Colossians 1. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. This is a letter from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus from our brother Timothy. We're writing to God's holy people in the city of Colossae, 
your faithful brothers and sisters of Christ, may God our Father give you grace and peace. We always pray for you, and we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all of God's people, which comes from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. You've had this expectation ever since you first heard the truth of the good news. This same good news that came to you is going out all over the world and it's bearing fruit everywhere, and here's the phrase, by changing lives, just as it changed your lives from the day that you first heard and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. You first learned about the good news from Epaphras, our beloved co-worker. He's Christ's faithful servant. He's helping us on your behalf, and he's told us about the love for others that the Holy Spirit has given you. So right away, we get this sense of excitement that Paul has, how deeply impacted he has been that the people that he's writing to have been by the coming of the gospel and the good news of Jesus into their lives and in their world. And he uses this phrase, the grace of God. And uh, Philip Yancey wrote a book called What's So Amazing About Grace? And if we were to ask that question, the real answer is that God's amazing grace and his wonderful grace changes lives. There's something we see really powerfully when a person comes into contact with God's grace in their lives. When someone who is lost and without hope hears and embraces the message of grace and God's love for them as expressed in Jesus, their life has the possibility of undergoing a radical change. And for some people, that change occurs in a defining moment. For some, we heard some of our young adults bear witness two weekends ago to the fact that in their lives, that happened over time as grace worked itself out. But in some ways, the results are the same because Paul says things happen in your life when grace gets in there and begins to do its work. And one of the things that it does is that grace creates confident hope if you look at verse 5. People who have allowed God's grace to come into their lives and begin to change it face the future with a different set of expectations, especially as they move towards a place in the end of their life. Paul says, you have a confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. And as a pastor, I have the privilege of officiating many, many funerals. Uh, over the last 14 years, I've done over 300 funerals, many of them from people outside of a faith background in any way, shape, or form. And one of the things that is so different in those environments is when people come into that stage of their life with a sense of hope and confidence in God's work of grace in their lives. That, that those funerals have a very different tone, a very different feeling to them. Yes, there's sorrow, but there's also a sense of expectancy, of reunion, and a sense of God's continued work in the promise of hope and heaven to us. So grace creates that sense of confidence and hope. Grace also, Paul says in verse 4, and then again in verse 8, creates in the heart of one who has been touched by God's grace a love for others. The earliest Christians 
who are part of the Christian movement, one of the things that their detractors noticed about them is that they cared for people. They cared for people who were poor on the margins of their society. They took in and nurtured to health those who were sick. And it was different than the rest of their culture. And as Christians, one of the radical things that grace does for us in our lives is it gives us a sense of compassion and capability to love those beyond our immediate, what would make sense to love, our immediate family, friends, people in our own social groups, people that can reciprocate that love to us. Because God's grace creates in our hearts a love that compels us to reach out beyond those social circles. And that's why uh, year after year, uh, we go to Tanzania and work with people with albinism who are just outcasts in their society because God's grace at work in hearts and lives gives us, as a faith community, a compassion for people in Guatemala, a compassion for people who are homeless here in our own city. God's grace creates that, where in some places it didn't exist before. The other thing God's grace does is it moves us to a place of desiring to share the story of God and the story of God's transforming work in our lives with other people. And I'm going to invite Ken Brothers to come up. And Ken is um, going to share with us just a little bit about the story that uh, God has done in his life because it's an incredible story of transformation. And so, Ken, why don't you just uh, give us a little bit of uh, background and story? Sure. And My family? Yeah. yeah, this is a great opportunity to testify. I serve a loving God that can transform lives. I grew up in Los Angeles in the 60s. I got caught up in the drug culture and uh, started out pretty innocently. And uh, I crossed a lot of lines. I swore I never would. And uh, the next thing I know... This is my description of addiction, using drugs against your will. I didn't want to do it. I had, I had lost that control in my life. And that there was no human power that could have helped me. I went through about nine programs, and I was really sincere about never doing drugs again. When I got out, probably went back to one of the same people and fell into it. I was at the Salvation Army some years ago. And the guy came up to me and said, Ken, can you write a poem about Christmas? And I said, a poem? I've never written a poem in my life. And I sat down. If I get emotional, emotional, it's just because uh, of what God's done in my life. I can't even get started on this. Because, uh, so anyway, I sat down and this poem flowed out of me. And when I talked to my brother today, he said, don't get emotional. <laughs> don't get emotional. He always tells me I haven't even started. And I'm, I just can't help what God's done in my life. But I sat down, and this, this poem will tell you where I was, what happened, the, the way I was living, and what God did. And I called it a gift from above. And it goes like this. And my addiction was suffering and pain, hurting my loved ones again and again, finding no peace for my restless soul. But now, by his love, he's restoring my soul. Once hopeless and helpless and stronger than dope, now finding in Jesus new peace, joy, and hope. No more remorse for choices I've made, but knowing forgiveness for mistakes that I've made. New meaning and purpose are mine in a prayer. 
finding the answer in someone who cares, not walking in darkness, but walking in light, choosing his ways and walking aright. This is where I lose it. <laughs> I'm thankful to God for sending his son, for paying my debt and for things he has done, for giving me freedom from suffering and pain, for setting me free from fetters and chains, washed in his blood, made whole and at peace. I thank God for his son as I kneel at his feet. No greater love will this world ever know than accepting God's gift in your heart and your soul. Thank you, Father, for sending your best that all mankind in him may be blessed. May God's gift this season have new meaning for you because there's room at his cross for me and for you. Lose it. <laughs> I just want to say this too: where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Amen. He came to set captives free. Yeah. I was a captive. I could not stop doing drugs. No matter how bad my life got, I went back to Jesus. Broke those chains. Amen. And like I tell people, I'm not ever struggling with it. He changed my heart. He changed the desires of my heart. I desire holiness. I desire the things of God. I want to move forward. And I want to reach out to, to others. There's a scripture, and I've, I should have copied it down. It's in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. The God of all comfort, who comforts us in our tribulation. Why? So we're able to comfort others with that same comfort. That's my mission statement. Yeah, it's a good word. Good word. Let's thank Ken for sharing with us. It's <laughs> awesome. I knew it. You know, that picture of the gospel and God's grace coming into a person's life and that was bound and changed. You know, we sang about that. There are walls which by chains I'm no longer bound. Like that's a powerful statement of truth of what the power of God can do. And friends, sometimes I get a little concerned that we just sing those kinds of songs. We're like, yeah, yeah, there's power and Jesus can change people's lives. But do we really believe in the power of God's grace to change a person's life and their heart forever? This is one of the things that I am most excited about, about our new building. Because we get the chance as a community to be right in the middle of a whole a group of apartments. I go there every Tuesday and just walk around the building and just pray and ask God to open my eyes and see. And God's just been pouring out his love into my heart for the people that live in those complexes, people that uh, don't have hope, that don't know that they don't have hope, that feel very self-sufficient and fine. And friends, we believe one of the reasons we are being placed there in that community is so that we can be a beacon of hope so that God's grace can change the hearts and the lives of the people in that neighborhood as he changed Ken's life and the lives of so many people here in this room. And that's exciting. And so if you've lost touch with that, you're like, hey, yeah, I sing those things, whatever, change. Ask God to give you a reimagined and a rekindled passion for people who are still stuck in chains of addiction, who are still stuck in 
uh, whatever it is that's holding them. That's one of the reasons why when we serve locally, we have a partnership with Wagner Hills because I love going down there and just rubbing shoulders with the women at that campus who are so real about the power of God at work in their lives. It's such an incredible reminder to just rekindle that in our hearts and in our lives. And so uh, Paul keeps going in uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 to 12, because he's talking about grace doing something, not just like a one-time change event in someone's life, but an ongoing process that continues to keep us in touch with God's grace and his power. Colossians 1, 9 says, So we have not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. And we ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will, to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. And then the way that you live will always honor and please the Lord. And your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. And we also pray that you will be strengthened with all of his glorious power. So you will have all of the endurance and the patience that you need. May you be filled with joy. Always thanking the Father, for he has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belong to his people who live in the light. So in other words, this text is reminding us of a truth that, that Ken spoke about. That that transforming work of God's grace in our lives is not just a moment in time. It's an ongoing event that God's power and his grace continues to work in our lives so that our past should not resemble our future. A changed life that is allowing our lives to be in an ongoing way changed by the power and presence of grace means that our life is going to produce good fruit. So here's the challenge factor with that. And that is this, that God loves you and Jericho Ridge loves you just the way that you are. You might be addicted to drugs. You might be homophobic. You might be greedy. You might be into pornography. You might be a gossip. You might be a liar. You might be disobedient to your parents. We love you and God loves you. But see, both Jericho Ridge and the Holy Spirit love you too much to allow those things to continue to have a grip on your life. They need to go. Because when you allow God to begin a good work in your life of producing good fruit in your life, then God's Spirit begins to give you a desire to change and begin to build new things into your life. So look at some of the things that Paul lists here. In Again, in chapter 1, verse 8, love for others begins to grow in your heart. Uh, in verse 9, you grow in a knowledge of God's will, of what God actually wants you to do as his grace continues to work in your life. Grow in spiritual wisdom and understanding. Imagine facing your day with a sense of confidence of saying, I'm not sure what I'm going to face today, but I'm going to face it with the equipping and strengthening power and wisdom that the Holy Spirit provides to me. Verse 11, endurance begins to be produced as a fruit in suffering and in hardship in our lives. Patience, that you need to parent well, that you need to deal with difficult 
friendships or people, joy, not just superficial happiness, but deep wells of joy that give you strength and are fuel for what the trials that you face in our lives. See, this is like the lesser known fruit of the Spirit list. These are the kinds of things that Paul says are a life that is changed and transformed by the Spirit of God sees increasing levels of these things in our hearts. But see, here's the challenge. Oftentimes, we look at a list like that and we want to pray and say, okay, God, I want to be a more patient person. <clears throat> I need that right now. Like, just get right on that. But this is where the analogy of fruit is helpful for us to think about. How does fruit grow? It grows slowly. It takes cultivation. It takes the right nutrients. Before I was a pastor, uh, I was in the viticulture industry. And so I learned a lot about growing grapes and vineyards. And right now uh, in BC, it's harvest time for a lot of varieties of grapes. But think about it for a moment. When did these grapes that are being harvested right now start growing? Way back in probably the spring. But if you even rewind the clock a little bit before that, vines don't grow up in one season and bear grapes and bear fruit in one season. Uh, in fact, when we would go in, uh, in Niagara-on-the-Lake and we would plant a new vineyard, uh, the model that we would use was to say, we're going to give this vineyard seven years before we pick anything from it. It's just going to have to grow, and these roots and these vines are going to have to get stronger for seven years, and then we may get some fruit out of it that we might be able to use. So think about that. Think about some of the places in the world uh, we were in France in the summer, and some of the vines in France have been there for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years growing in the same place, drawing nutrients from the same soil and producing fruit. Good fruit always takes time to produce. It's true in the wine industry, and it's true in our lives. Things like love, and endurance, patience, joy. These are things we can't rush or hurry the development of. And in this passage, we actually see a little bit of a pattern that Paul lays out for developing good fruit in our lives. So using the Colossian Christians as an example, uh, Paul says that first thing they did is they actually heard about the need for God's grace to work in their lives, then they had to understand it, they had to wrestle with the implications of it, and then they had to respond to it. So they had to hear about God and his work, which meant someone had to tell him, and Paul names that individual here, and then they had to actually engage with the message and figure out, do I want this, do I not want this, what does this mean for my life? And then they had to respond to it in some way, a volitional choice. And the same thing, is true about virtues, good fruit that we might want to see grow in our own lives. To identify and find out about it, wrestle with it, and then respond in ways that demonstrate some congruence with it. So I'm going to use three Bs. I'm not going to use them always in the same sequence as sociologists would use them. 
uh, but hearing and understanding and responding means that I'm believing that which I have heard to be true. Paul says you first heard about this good news and then you adopted it, you brought it into your life, you wrestled with it, and then you responded to it by God's grace. And one of the things to remember here is that God is always the initiator here, and God always then calls us as partners with him to be messengers or emissaries. Somebody had to come and give a message of hope to Ken in order for him to respond in faith to it. And now Ken sees in the, in the language of 2 Corinthians 1, his job as being one who goes out as an ambassador and tells other people about the good fruit that God produced in his life because he believes that God can do that in the lives of other people. And so when grace comes into our lives, one of the things that begins to change is our beliefs. We come to a right ordered thinking about reality, about who God is, about who we are, and about our need to respond in grace. The next thing that happens is grace, Paul says, creates in our hearts a desire to grow and to change. And we're going to talk more about the motivation for this in a few minutes because a lot of times what's happened in history is Christians have been very quick and guilty of trying to reform behavior personally, institutionally, or socially without actually acknowledging a difference in beliefs and caring really about what other people think. They just wanted to get people to act in the right way. And so it didn't quite matter if they were on board with a way of thinking as long as you evidenced the behavior that was congruent, then they were thumbs up with that. So we'll get to this a little bit more uh, when we look at what Paul says in chapter 2. The third B is belonging, that grace actually knits us together into a family, into God's family. And so God's grace at work in our lives, Paul says, brings us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son. And we share in an inheritance that belongs to his people who live and who walk in the light. So Paul's just reminding us here, again, about what we talked about in our last series, Uncomfortable, that no matter your past, no matter your social standing, your race, your gender, uh, you are knit together into God's family and you belong. You share an inheritance with the people who are at all stages of growth and maturity. And this is part of the, the challenging reality of living together as part of God's family is that we're part of a family that is a global family, that's a historic family, that has all kinds of expressions of denominations. And so people that are part of God's family can still believe vastly different things than you or I might believe. And they may behave very differently than you or I might behave. But we still all belong together in God's family. And God is at work producing good fruit in our lives and around the world. See, God's always at work. He's desiring to develop and deepen you as an individual, us as a community. But he does it more like a farmer, training grapes up onto those trellises so that they can produce 
good fruit and bear the weight of producing fruit. God's creating the conditions with the right soil and light conditions for your growth. And if you and I are not experiencing growth in our walk and relationship with God, sometimes one of the questions we could ask ourselves is, am I doing anything that would be preventing or hindering God's work and growth in my spiritual life? And this can be any number of different things. One question to ask is, um, do I believe anything that is hindering that growth? For example, if we don't think rightly, we can't act rightly. Are you allowing the scriptures to shape your thinking or is it coming from other places like our, our culture? Do you have behaviors that are harming or that are actively undermining any desire that you might have to grow in your walk? Do you have places of deep belonging? And here's often where I see a challenge. People, when I meet with them, will say things like, well, I'm just not growing. And I'll say, well, tell me a little bit about your life. You know, where, where are you, what kind of environments are you putting yourself in? Are you putting yourself in places where you can grow? Do you have relationships with people that would be able to speak truth into your life? What's your scripture intake like? What's your connection with your church like? And people say, ah, oh, you know, not great. I, I might read the Bible every now and then. Might get to church if it's not really sunny out. You know, if they have it at a time that's convenient for me. You know, that's robbing yourself of the relationships necessary for you to grow, to experience deep community. You're not going to experience deep community if you show up once a month here at Jericho Ridge and be really known by people and have people speak into your life and allow you to speak into their lives. You'll get out of a community like this what you invest into it. And so I think we need to be clear. Spiritual practices are not the things that create or produce our growth, but they do create the conditions that growth can happen in our lives. And sometimes, either knowingly or unknowingly, we just sabotage and undermine our own growth by not engaging with the things that God has given us and the tools that God has given us for growth. And you might say, well, Brad, that sounds really fine. As a pastor, of course, you would say something like that. Isn't that just kind of religious talk to get people to do what you want them to do? Do this and do this and Jesus will love you more. Uh, that actually has a name for it other than pastoral manipulation, which hopefully we're not practicing. Um, and many of us, myself included, grew up under the influence of it. And uh, the name for that kind of thing is legalism. And see, the group that Paul's writing to actually suffered under the weight of this same kind of thing. Uh, the city of Colossae, uh, archaeologists tell us, people had these crazy beliefs, which were but very common in the ancient world and are practiced in many, many places around the world still today, that they could manipulate the supernatural powers or angels or direct the course of the stars or then anything that impacted human life if they had ways of thinking and behaving, kind of tools available to them to make their life go well. 
And so uh, archaeologists that have uh, worked in Colossae say they've found evidence of all kinds of festivals that these people would host to try and get the gods, small g, to be excited and pleased with them, to allow them to have good harvests and good health and all of that kind of stuff. And we see this when we, when we go to Tanzania. And so when the Colossians became Christians, they just took all of those beliefs and practices and they just kind of baptized them with a bunch of Jesus language. And they thought, oh, I know how to make Jesus happy with me. I'll do a bunch of ritual stuff like I used to do to keep the gods happy with me. And then this new God will be super happy with me. And so they became hyper-focused on doing everything just right so that God would be happy with them. They were keeping the Sabbath just right. They wondered if they needed to go back through the list of Old Testament rules and make a list and just check it twice and see if they were the one, just keeping it in the way that would make Jesus happy with them and in good standing with God. So basically, they took all of those other practices in that worldview and their pagan ritual experiences, and they brought them over, and they were going to prove to God just how Christian they really were. But see, there's one just teensy-tiny problem with that approach, and that is not such a small problem. It's completely and diametrically opposed to what Christ invites us into. And so Paul writes to them, flip over to chapter 2, and look at verse 16. Paul goes through a whole list earlier than this uh, of rules that these people felt that they were deeply committed to. And he says, you know, don't, in verse 8, don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies, high-sounding nonsense, human thinking from the spiritual powers of this world. For in Christ lives the fullness of God in human body, so you are complete through your union with Christ. And then he talks about all of the things. Verse 16, don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink, for not celebrating certain holy days, new moon ceremonies, or Sabbath. These rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come. Christ himself is that reality. Don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial, worship of angels, Oh, saying, I've had visions about these things. Their sinful minds have made them proud. They're not connected to Christ, the head of the body, for Christ holds the whole body together with its joints and ligaments as God nourishes it. Verse 20, you have died with Christ, and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following all the rules of the world, such as don't handle this, don't taste that, don't touch this? Such rules are merely human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. Now, these rules might seem wise because they, result, they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in combating and conquering a person's evil desires. Ken talked about this in his testimony. I was trying to break free of all these things, but I couldn't do it. 
Shouldn't be news to you, but I want to make it clear. One of the most important things that you can do if you grew up in a fundamentalist subculture is to learn to reject the lie of legalism. Because legalism promises you that by following the rules, you can get into right standing with God. But friends, authentic life change does not come from following all of the rules. Life change is a result of God's grace at work in our lives. Life change is producing good fruit, but this fruit does not grow well in the soil of legalism. What do I mean when I say legalism? Well, legalism is to seek to achieve forgiveness from God and acceptance by God through my obedience to God by keeping a bunch of rules. In other words, well, if I keep all the rules, if I behave like a good Christian, God's gonna love me, my pastor will love me, my church friends will love me. That's the lie of legalism. And it's an intoxicating promise because it can almost seem true at times. But this is Paul's point. He says, human regulations seem really, really awesome especially to certain personality types who like rules and who like to kind of follow them and figure out, okay, what's expected of me? I like clarity on that. Personality types that like to be told what to think and not how to think. But friends, the power for Christian living does not come from pious devotion, self-denial, or really rigorous self-discipline. It comes from the work of grace and the Holy Spirit in our lives because legalism does not have the power to transform your life and your heart at the deepest level. And so one of the ways that you can test whether or not legalism is still kind of growing in the background or operating in the background of your life is just to monitor your inner dialogue. And so when you hear something or you read something in the scriptures or you engage with something regarding your spiritual life, Ask yourself, what shoulds or oughts do you hear in your head? Oh, I should do this, or I ought to be that. Where are those coming from? Are they coming from your past? Are they coming from an expectations that if I do all of those things, then people around me will perceive me in a certain way? Because the ought of the Christian life, the things that we ought to do are built upon the is of having received the gift of life in Christ. They are not built upon legalism and they do not grow well in that soil. And so if you hear things like, oh, failed again, God must not love me because I don't read my Bible every morning on that Project 345 plan, that's not the voice of God. That's the voice of shame and condemnation, and it has its roots in the lie of legalism. And so maybe for you, you need to come for prayer ministry at the end of our morning together and ask God to begin to set you free from the lies that you have believed and from that tangled web. Friends, this is a very complicated journey, and you might need to seek counseling for this as well. And many of us are on it. And many of us are at different stages of it, but it is a very complicated one. 
but you can walk away and out uh, from under the deception and the lie of legalism. In a few moments, we're going to move into a time of responding to God by participating in communion. And when we celebrate communion, we're doing something that really should strike us as odd. We are celebrating someone's death. We're looking back almost 2,000 years ago at the life and the death and resurrection of Jesus. And in uh, the Christian tradition, we use language of celebration of someone's execution. Look what Paul says, though, in Colossians chapter 3, sorry, chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, when he's looking at the cross and the life transformation that can happen as a result. He says, you know what, Colossians? You know what, Jericho? You were dead because of your sins. Because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. And then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all of our sins, and he canceled the record of the charges against us. He took it away by nailing it to the cross. And in this, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities, and he shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Paul's using a language here and a word picture that would have been abundantly clear to his first readers. It's one from the ancient world. And when a Roman general would conquer an opposing force somewhere, they would chain up any survivors and they would drag them back into town behind their chariot. And it was a scene of utter humiliation. The general comes in at the front of the procession and as if saying behind, look at all of these losers behind me that were not strong enough to resist. We have won victory over them and they are now our slaves and our subjects. And he would take that conquered army and drag them back through the town. And the Colossians would have seen dozens and dozens of these military parades and disarmed foes being publicly humiliated and disgraced. And Paul says to them, you know what? This is exactly what happened on the cross. Jesus is like that general. And there was a cosmic spiritual battle. And Jesus won. And Satan and all of his forces were defeated. And one of the most ironic things about the Christian faith is that we've taken an instrument of death and torture and we've turned it into a place of celebration of victory. Because we understand that victory comes in that moment in that place where Jesus surrendered, where Christ's life, his death and his resurrection accomplished for us on the cross and in the resurrection something greater than anything else in human history. The debt of your sins was paid off. You and I are forgiven and free. The charges that were written down against you got ripped up and thrown away. Satan was robbed of his power to intimidate and control. The grounds for Satan's accusation in your life were taken away through the cross. And that's why we celebrate when we have communion. It's like a victory parade. And so the worship team is going to come and they're going to lead us in two songs. And I want to remind us what we're saying when we celebrate communion. When we come to the table, 
And when we say, I'm here as a follower of Jesus, I'm celebrating this as a Christian. It's not about claiming to be perfect or strong or have it all together. It's a statement of a simple dependence saying, I recognize that I am a sinner. I recognize that I have been a recipient of God's grace and mercy. And so every time we come to the table, it's an expression of humility and an expression of need, saying, God, I need your grace, not just back in my past, one-time event, but in an ongoing way. And then the other thing that we're saying when we come to the table is we're saying, when I declare that I'm a Christian, I'm not saying this is about how I behave, but it's a declaration that once I was bound in chains and I have now been set free. Once I was lost and now I have been found. To come to the table is to remind us of God's grace and that God's love could rescue us. And our hearts then respond in gratitude and in faith. And so if you are a person who says, I'm a Christian, I identify as part of God's family, then this is a table that's open for you. Uh, Gary and Betty are going to serve at one of our tables. Allie and Steve will serve at the other table. And they're gluten-free options. And so the way we practice here at Jericho is whenever you're ready, you can make your way down the front aisle here, make your way over to the table, and then make your way back to your seat. You can participate and partake at your seat, or you can do it at the sides if you'd like. Our prayer team, which is uh, David and Katie and Wally and Sylvia, are available at the back if you'd like to spend time praying together. So let me pray for us as we respond to God's grace. God, we thank you for the power of grace at work in our lives and in your world. Your grace has found us. Your grace is here for us. And so I pray for each individual that maybe has never opened their life to receive the grace of God. Father, today I pray that it would be their day to say yes to Jesus. And in a moment of humility and surrender that they would say, I acknowledge and I desire God's grace to come into my life. Friend, if that's you today, don't leave here without talking to me. We want to pray with you. We want to start you well on that journey of faith. We want to walk with you at every step of that way. And for those of us, God, who have been walking down this road for a seasons of time where that wonder of God, your grace, has become fuzzy or foggy in our minds, God, would you renew that in us today? Give us a fresh appreciation for the power of grace that it's greater than anything else at work in our world. And so we receive it with faith and we partake of this bread which reminds us that your body was broken for us. We partake of this cup which reminds us that you gave your life, your blood was shed for us, that we could be free. We receive it with gratitude and with humility and we thank you for your work. And we ask you just keep doing it because you know that we need it. In the name of Jesus, your son, we pray. Amen.